0: It's a surprising fact that in a city like Sydney more trips are made by bus than by train and as the population increases and autonomous vehicles develop, so the use of road corridor space will have to cater for more bus rapid transit. An international consortium including the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies at the University of Sydney is to continue its groundbreaking efforts to improve bus rapid transport systems with renewed backing from the Volvo Research and Education Foundation. The funding is not linked nor bounded nor do they have to report to any Volvo manufacturing organisation as Professor Corin Mully, the founding chair in public transport at the University of Sydney, explains.
1: Okay, so it's not actually a link with Volvo. Everyone believes that the Volvo project, as we call it, is actually um, pandering to Volvo's wishes. And of course, Volvo make buses. But in fact, what what is funding our consortium, which is a worldwide consortium, in the sense that we collaborate with the university in Chile, and MIT in America. and in the new funding, a university in South Africa and a world sort of um, a not for profit organization, the World Institute that's based in Washington and also in Brazil are the people that we tend to work with. So it's funded by the charitable educational arm of, of Volvo. So it's the Volvo um, educational trust that has made the grant to our consortium. And to say that it's um, partisan is nonsense. No one talks about the philanthropic arm of Microsoft as supporting Microsoft, and yet it's no different from what we're getting from Volvo. Anyway, that aside, um, we've been looking at all sorts of things as a consortium, about how bus rapid transit could be better placed in cities and provide better mobility for citizens because that's what it's all about. What we've been doing in Sydney specifically is trying to identify why it is that the, there appears to be a rail bias not only from politicians but from citizens. So we've looked at We've done a stated choice experiment in which we've given people, to begin with, pictures where there was a new tram, an old tram, well, a new LRT, an old LRT, a new bus and an old bus, and asked people which one they preferred. And I was staggered. Over 50%, just on the looks, chose the modern LRT. More recently, we've been looking at another stated choice experiment to try and dig down and find out what sort of characteristics are putting people in favour of rail-based technology rather than road-based technology. And there's some interesting features that have come out of this, and the two that stand out for me is that actually from buses, what citizens appreciate is the greater network that you get for the same amount of dollars spent. So we gave people a fixed budget. You know, you can have this amount of network from this one or this amount of network from another without saying that it was LRT or BRT. And people chose that feature as being important to them. And the second thing which stood out for me in terms of the research is the role of experience. So in cities, like Brisbane, where people are familiar with bus rapid transit, it gets a very much higher rating in terms of people being prepared to vote for a system that would include BRT.
0: This is marvellous because I've just been to a conference where it is provoking, in my mind, this passion that we seem to have for fixed rail. Is fixed rail something that is has such permanency? And this is something we've talked about in a proposal for the trackless tram down the middle of Parramatta Road, that because it is so visible that it makes it more feel more permanent. And so we shouldn't be trying to say we must have a tram, but we should be perhaps trying to replicate those things that make it obvious and solid and, uh, as it were, dependable. in in a transit system, which doesn't necessarily have to mean it's got rails.
1: That's right. So I think there's, and this is, I think, where experience of a system comes into play, because if you go to South America where BRT systems are in place, or South South Africa or Brisbane or parts of the Liverpool Parramatta Transitway, you can see that they're on dedicated track. And the track part of the road that these buses run on are not used by any other vehicles. And they would be just as difficult to remove as a rail system. Indeed, for example, the Liverpool-Parramatta Transitway, for better or for worse, has actually been built, in some senses, to light rail standards so that it can move forward to light rail if and when demand is increased. So there is that perception that once you've got rails, you've got something which is fixed, you've got something which is long-lasting, and you've got something which people won't take away. But a proper BRT system with a dedicated road space is just as difficult to take away as a light rail that's using dedicated road space as well.
0: It's not just a case of taking it away too, though. It's a case of here is something that I can see that that is so permanent to... Well, not to take away, but is so obvious to me. So clearly dedicated to the sort of thing that I can participate in and I want to do.
1: But it's not only that, um, it's also, it appears that the land value uplift that you get from rail-based systems are higher than from bus-based systems. So, you know, that's tied in with people's perceptions of, The accessibility that you get from a rail-based system over a bus-based system and it's strange there are some things which of course rail-based systems are much better at comfort is one of the things that people often cite and it's certainly true that the rail-based systems don't have to be much more comfortable but in many cities where BRT has been put in As a cheaper alternative or a more cost-effective alternative, the vehicles are not as smooth riding as you might get on a light rail.
0: Is that because they are driven by a driver? I long for autonomous buses, not just to make them cheaper to run, but so that they're not so jerky. That has been my passion in catching buses for quite some time.
1: I think autonomous buses into the future may well have a smoother take up and slow down. But one of the things I went on the BRT in Brazil before the um, Olympics there, and the drivers were using buses which had manual gear shifting as opposed to the sorts of automatic boxes that we see in Australia. And they were very much more jerky and very much more difficult to align alongside the stations in terms of opening and closing the doors. You know, sometimes they weren't parallel, so it was difficult to get on and off. And that was partly to do with driver training and partly to do with using vehicles which are in practice cheaper to provide, so you can have more vehicles for your dollar.
0: The other thing autonomous vehicles will do is ultimately to be able to replicate the value characteristic of a rail system of linking a number of carriages together not necessarily physically but certainly electronically will that allow a bus system on its own corridor ultimately to to catch up in terms of capacity
1: i don't know there's a lot of debate in the brt circles about what sort of Bus rapid transit system one should be looking for. So Brisbane, if you're familiar with it, has a system which we call an open system. It uses vehicles that don't require so many transfers and collects people from the suburbs and brings them to the infrastructure that then makes them quick into the city centre. Whereas in other countries, They use what are called closed systems, where the dedicated vehicles run up and down a particular corridor, and then people transfer to go onto those corridors. So I think in the future, one of the things which autonomous vehicles could really help with is in a closed system, running up and down a corridor, and you could then make them as frequent as you can, as you want to.
0: The great thing about that system of being around, running around and being able to change, I go back to the sadly passed away uh, Paul Meese, who said that in many ways we seem to have forgotten about the middle suburbs, almost as though it's only very high density that are honourable and the best way for public transport. Yet, with autonomous systems, we could well run good transit systems that serve low to medium density areas?
1: I don't think it's necessarily autonomous vehicles. It's actually a way of thinking. I've always been of the view that you should, in an era where subsidy is constrained, you should, for public transport, build up frequency on corridors so that you get regular, even headways you should remove what I call the wiggly routes.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely.
1: And concentrate your resources on the main corridors. That, of course, means that you're going to have people that may not be able to access those main corridors because they're either too far away or they can't walk. And that, I think, is a separate issue. It's an issue that currently could be resolved by flexible transport. But I think in the future may well be what autonomous vehicles can really resolve picking people up and bringing them to these heavily and densely populated routes of vehicles.
0: I think autonomous vehicles actually are being portrayed as this lovely idea of door-to-door, which uh, from the moral high ground will help people with a disability, and that's fine. I'm not saying that's uh, not a good thing. That's a great thing. But we tend to dream it then for all of us, yet the reality of coping in a city is that we are still going to have to have that transit-type function of a higher capacity, not ultimate necessarily, but higher capacity vehicles going down corridors. Is there a need to push the whole line of not train corridor or whatever. But first and foremost, we must be thinking about what's the pattern and that of corridors we should be setting up. Then we'll look at how we service those with a particular mode of transport.
1: Well, yes, except that I think actually you need to go back one step even more and say we first need to know where people live or origin from and where they want to go from, go to, so that we have some idea of where those corridors should be. And, you know, if you have a high-frequency corridor, interchange is not such an issue. And high-frequency corridors mean that people who currently use private cars can have journey times which are much more similar to car journeys, and you start encouraging people to get out of their cars.
0: It needs to broaden in how that might be used. In Sydney, the North Ride area uh, has a new train line, relatively new train line there, and that's good. Yet getting around that area, which covers several kilometres in any direction is very cumbersome both from walking and or trying to get some sort of transit uh, to do it yet companies like Hyundai are looking at being able to showcase new hydrogen technology powered vehicles by running just regular circulating routes not going to every uh, nook and cranny but circulating routes in order to try and enhance that type of trip.
1: And I think that's what we call the first and last mile problem yes. is that it's not effective or efficient for private cars to do this, nor is it efficient to put big buses doing it either. What you need is something which is smaller and certainly more frequent so that people can get off the train and they don't need to wait more than 10 minutes max.
0: Absolutely, and uh, I, I support that 100%.
1: London has what they call a forget the timetable frequency because what happens if you have big gaps in your public transport frequency, people have to look at timetables and then they don't go. So if you have a forget the timetable frequency, which in London is about 10 to 12 minutes, People turn up at random to bus stops or rail stations in order to take the service. If you get a frequency which is worse than that, then people just don't go. They look. What you get are the captive audience who have no other way of going.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Uh, and and the fact that you know about it, you can plot it out. In my youth to look up a timetable was to go to a kitchen drawer and get something that was out of date and incomprehensible. Now, the availability of knowing where something is and where it's going is a great advantage to me and perhaps to people in general. Do we need to help reinforce that to people? Yes,
1: I mean, I think that information sources are changing and increasingly people want to have information on the go and that's the sort of information we should provide about public transport. Indeed, many of the apps in Sydney do that. There are apps for all sorts of things, but there's one in particular that says, look, this is where I am, where could I go to? And it gives you every alternative. What more could you want when you're out?
0: That point about every alternative is interesting, isn't it? That it's open to say... Well, this is the range of options. I'm not just selling one particular mode. I mean, even within public transport, one mode that I allow you to understand what your trip may be, not just the service I happen to provide. Yes, that's right. You said that there was these whole comparisons of different modes of transport that people looked at and which one they would choose and I think there are practical reasons. There's also image reasons and and how they're presented. I came out of a conference thinking maybe what the bus fraternity needs is better artist impressions because most of the new proposals, like all proposals, have artist impressions, be they land development or transport, which really are idealistic in what they present.
1: That's right, but there are also buses that are used in some cities across Europe that have cases over their wheels, so they actually look like light rail, which I think is quite an interesting image issue.
0: I wondered how effective that is, but of course it's not just my judgment. I just wondered whether people associate that look with a particular service. It's not that they particularly want to get into something that looks like that. It's just that it's the link to what they either enjoyed as a youth or feel is the service that is provided?
1: Who knows, but um, I'm not sure that I would encourage going down on that line because um, although branding has been tried, particularly in the UK following deregulation, branding your vehicles is a very inefficient use of vehicles because it ties them to a particular route and doesn't allow the operator to switch between routes effectively. And in fact, what happens is that they do still switch, and so the branding doesn't work.
0: I was talking to a, a guy who was a, an expert mechanical engineer in the designing of trams, and we are talking about how to make them, so where for at least part of their trip, they're battery-operated, so they don't need overhead wires. I asked him about how we might consider alternate energy sources to drive electric motors namely hydrogen his immediate answer was trams are rather heavy for that whereas buses aren't is that another area where we really need to just rethink what is the vehicle that we're traveling in the light of new technologies do you think that may be an area that can be pushed
1: Yes, I think from what you say, certainly, it's not an area that I know very much about. But another anecdote, before I came to Sydney, I used to live in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in the northeast of England. And it was one of the cities that had the first electric hybrid buses. And I heard as I was crossing the road once someone asking where the Quayside bu- buses were. And the person said, oh, well, you'll find them over there Listen carefully, they're the ones which are quiet.
0: You see, that's a lovely point because the other thing about the standard steel rims on steel rails is the noise. And we are now talking about a new corridor in Sydney that'll go to Parramatta, which if Parramatta is to be the city that people envisage, it'll be operating all hours. And if it experiences what Melbourne and that has found, that late night transport is well expected, then having a steel wheel on steel track vehicle is extremely noisy. Is noise another area and um, which we may need to look to new technology to help deliver a better overall transport system.
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, the work that we've done around value uplift shows that living too close to a rail station or living too close to the route of a transit system actually decreases the amount of uplift you get from the provision of new infrastructure. So certainly the market is valuing Noise as being an issue, and actually, and actually also crime around stations, which tend to be much further apart than the BRT stops.
0: And that would mean that they are more isolated. Well, the BRT stop. No, no, the the more separated train stations.
1: Well, train stations seem to seem to, according to the market, attract undesirables, and so it's linked to the amount of crime but because bus services tend to have more distributed stops or stations, that impact doesn't appear to come. Being close to them is good for accessibility. Being too close can make it noisy.
0: It's often been said that we've had driverless trains since the 60s and the great thing that rail provided was guidance. Surely now new technology allows us to consider that without having to put the huge expense of a rail system.
1: That's true, although I don't think we're there yet.
0: How close do you think we might be? I I ask that because I, I posed the question the other day of the Carlingford to Parramatta light rail system, which is replacing a train system, as to whether by the time it's built in 2023, that we might not have guided bus systems. Uh, Well, I won't even use the word bus, but a guided vehicle system that would be capable of doing pretty well all that that would do for a significant less cost. So do you think we're going to be close, given, of course, that that is a confined corridor where autonomous vehicles are really uh, really at their best at the moment?
1: Yeah, so it's certainly in a confined corridor. I don't have any issue, but I think that we're somewhere apart away from having autonomous vehicles on
0: roadways. I totally agree. But in many ways, I think that re emphasises our need to have a much greater focus on corridors and how we use them, even perhaps to the extent that we may define within a local area of a looping bus that it may have its more priority and designated area to be able to travel on.
1: Yes, I'm not sure that I agree about a looping bus. Bus. I think that we should be looking for corridors which connect key destinations. And then along that corridor, you have transfer points for more local places where local autonomous loops might be created.
0: Yeah, local autonomous loops, I agree. Uh, Which moves me right away from on-demand, door-to-door types of transit, which to my mind I don't think have been very successful to date. Have you got a reflection on that?
1: I think flexible transport, as I call it, the door-to-door transport, is remarkably successful in particular niche areas. But it's not a form of mass transit. It's too expensive. It's good for, for example, replacing a late-night bus So instead of having a bus driver and a big size bus waiting to take maybe no persons or one persons, then flexible transport replacing that service will only run when it's needed. I've actually done um, a study using data from Richmond and Windsor in Sydney, that shows that you can increase the coverage of public transport from something like just about 40% of properties to over 90% of properties by using exactly the same budget, but increasing the frequency of core services. And in this case, it was from Richmond-Windsor down to Rouse Hill and Richmond-Windsor down to Penrith. So building those up to what I would call a reasonable frequency and then having access to those services through flexible transport. And, you know, that's a big increase in accessibility, keeping your budget constant. So there are places where flexible transport will work and can be cost-effective, but it's not the universal solution.
0: But it's interesting that what you're doing there is not taking a one-size-fits-all. It's a very, even to the point of if you are going to travel late at night then perhaps you need a system that adapts to that rather than just runs a few more services, that it, it might be different in its approach but merely a, an adaption of what you're doing rather than, as I say, a one-size-fits-all, which I think is often the image that transit has in the community.
1: That's true, but my line for public transport wow. is that all public transport, transport should be demand-responsive not just door-to-door transport, but all public transport should reflect what people want to do. If we're going to make any more, any progress towards greater sustainability, then we need to get um, choice travellers on public transport, not just those who are captive because they've got no other no other choice.
0: Is there a reflection there of the difference between almost supply and demand side doing it? We tend to build things well there's an old expression which I know some people absolutely loathe behaviorless some loathe of build it and they would come tends to mean I'll build it where I can build it and that's not necessarily where people need to or want to go
1: that's very true and that's partly because cities you know retrof- retrofitting cities is difficult and expensive But, you know, if you put things where people want them, and Madrid has got this absolutely right, they've built a series of interchanges around a ring of the centre of Madrid. And the transport planners argued with the politicians on one particular interchange that I went to look at and said that it couldn't be there. People wanted it to be here, even though it was more expensive. And they've got over 1,000% increase in throughput in the first year. That's what happens when you put things where people want them.
0: And that was Professor Corin Mully, who is the founding chair in public transport at the Institute of Transport and Logistics Studies.